Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that asks, which came first, the chicken factory or the egg factory? I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and welcome to a kind of mini-series or micro-podcast inside The New Disruptors that I'm calling Grand Inventions. I'm talking to people in this podcast who have a grandparent or great-great-great-grandparent who invented something that's still in use today. I thought it would be interesting to talk to people today about how this kind of inventiveness from the past, especially in the family, affected them, and to talk about family myths and reality. In my own family, my grandfather was a real raconteur. Uh, Our family ran furniture stores for many decades in Poughkeepsie, New York, and that was what he did from when he was a kid until he retired in the 1970s and sold off Fleischmann's fine furniture. But he always told me a story about how during World War II, even though he wasn't an inventor, even though he wasn't an engineer, he was working on the home front in a plant in Poughkeepsie where an IBM plant had been converted to wartime production. And he was working on the supercharger impellers that were used for high altitude aircraft. And these impellers allowed these early high altitude aircraft to stay aloft, but they required very tight tolerances. They were like fan blades and the balancing process was very complicated. My grandfather looked at it one day while this was going on and he said, you know, I'm just a furniture guy. I'm not an engineer, but you're using four points to balance this thing. In the furniture business, if we want something to balance, we use three points, like a three-legged stool. And sure enough, they adapted the process and this helped them improve the accuracy and you know, improve the production of these impellers. Now, was that a family myth or not? I looked up some of the details and of course, they did make those impellers at the Poughkeepsie plant for IBM during World War II. And my father found in our family records that my grandfather had saved the suggestion form he'd submitted with this idea. In this micro podcast uh, that I'll be doing from time to time, I'm talking to people who have this family history and about these different kinds of inventions, like I say, all of which are still in use in some form or have perpetuated at least to current times. So join me for this first episode in the series, Grand Inventions, and I'll continue to release new episodes from time to time. Joining me is Chris Higgins. Hello, Chris. Hey, Glenn. How's it going? It's fantastic. And uh, you have a great grandparent in this case. And what did your or what things, I should say multiple things, did your great-grandfather invent? Well, uh, my great-grandfather was named Harvey Lewis Sponberg, and he invented a variety of devices, physical, you know, clicky inventions, to count things. Now, like if you think back to an odometer in a car, that thing that's the wheel of numbers that counts up, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. That was what he invented. He invented a bunch of these. And I've got a stack of paper. I've got a bunch of these patent (laughs) applications right here. I can give you some links. Uh, They're all on Google Patents now. And you can look up all this this wild stuff. So his first one in 1936 is just called Counter. And then in, uh, oh, actually, no, in 34, there's one for an odometer specifically. Um, And then a Counter for Machines in 37. Uh, in 36, a just a simple counting device. Uh, in 39, another kind of counter. Uh, let's see, here's a one from 38, which is a pick counter. And that one's kind of fun. If you've ever seen that thing that you hold in your hand, like if you go into a concert and somebody has a little metal ball with a clicky on it, and yeah. you click it and it increments by one, that was a product that his company, Vitar Root, uh, manufactured. And that was, that was actually the first way that I understood that this was something that my grandfather, my great-grandfather made uh, because somebody pointed to it and said, hey, your great-grandfather invented that, basically. All kind of county things, things that, that wh- what part of the country was this in, do you know? He was born in Detroit, Michigan. He was educated in Germany. 
uh, in the in like around 1912, and I guess got out of there real quick, um, and then primarily lived in Connecticut. Uh, so Vita Root was a, a conglomerate of a couple of different companies. Yeah, I think we forget, you know, in the printing industry, there were, there were um, all kinds, if you look at old catalogs for uh, printing presses, there are all kinds of devices to count stuff. And I'm just thinking about that. You're trying to count the amount of fuel going into a, a from a, a fuel pump into a car. Right. So all right. of this, these inventions seem to center around a way to tabulate an action happening. Yeah, and if you read the applications, you know, there's this, and also some of the Vita Root marketing materials later, it's absolutely a matter of, you know, I mean, this is the, this is the early 30s and onward, they're dealing with a problem of, for one thing, just tabulating anything. So tabulating how often is a loom actuated. So, you know, someone who works a shift on a loom, how many hours have they spent at that loom? Like that's listed in the patent application as a useful application of this thing. Um, But also, yeah, gasoline was absolutely the driver of a bunch of these things. And you could take the, just a historical note, um, Prior to these counting number wheels, uh, and there were many, there is a rich history of odometers and different ways to count a thing. Uh, But the way this business kind of worked was uh, coupling a flow meter, so a thing that would measure the variable flow of a liquid, in this case, you know, gasoline is a good example, as it went through a thing and then into a vessel. So in this case, like your car's fuel tank. Prior to that, the way that you went to get gasoline was you went to a, there was a big glass cylinder and you would manually crank up a certain amount. Like you would pump it out of the ground into the glass cylinder and say, okay, here's 10 gallons. Then you would let gravity feed the 10 gallons into your tank. And then someone would like do some math, right? So 10 times the amount per gallon times the fractional blah, blah, blah. And then you would pay for that. So one of the applications of these counters is to say, Okay, if we have a thing that is driven by gears, and when we have a flow meter, which they also had, that allows that thing to be driven by the flow of a variable temperature liquid, Mm -hmm. then, boy, do we have a product for you, because then... You know, there's no math involved. It just does the math for you. Gears do the math for you. You set the thing that says, here's the price. You set the thing, you know, you press the button that resets it all back to zero and you start pumping. And that's way faster than pumping up 10 gallons, dispensing 10 gallons, seeing how much was left over, oopsie doopsie, and so on. <laughs> that's that's like before uh, the word was plastics is the future. It's gears, the future. <laughs> gears. gears. Cams, cams. Cams and levers. Yeah. And, uh, so do you remember how old you were when you first learned about uh, this these inventions or that your great-grandfather was an inventor at all? I, I mean, I must have been about six years old. Um, he died the year I was born, right mm-hmm. before I was born. Um, so and this is a guy who was born in 1893 and then died in uh, 1978. So... He, I grew up in a a situation where I had no grandfathers, okay? So none Mm. living or, you know, and I I ended up with these legends of grandfathers and great-grandfathers present in my family. And that's, those legends loomed really large and none larger really than than H.L. Sponberg, my great-grandfather. That's my mother's mother's father. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew about him, I mean, probably from the first time that I met my grandmother, Estelle, because she just talked about him constantly. That was her father. And she was she was really proud of him. And she would explain to me, like she would haul out an object and say, well, you see this here? This is something your grandfather invented. And to be perfectly frank, I think some of the things she showed me, he didn't, no, he did that. There's no way. There is no way. And I mean, but this was one of her hobbies when I would spend the summer with her. She would just pull out something and say, well, your, your great, you know, your great grandfather invented this, this address book. <laughs> and I'm like, 
Oh, cool. And then only later did I kind of start to question that. It, yeah, this, the mythology grows a little bit over time. But that's the funny mm-hmm. part is, given the number of patents that he had, he clearly did invent a bunch of stuff. And there's things that he, if he invented that many things that were patented, I mean, patenting was much easier in those days. It was a less fraught and expensive process and so forth. But that means he probably was involved in a lot of stuff that wasn't patented and that was created as a product or or sold. But um, I do kind of like that. Like this light bulb, your grandfather invented this light bulb or, or your great grandfather. <laughs> this is like, no, no, um, maybe not yeah. all those things. Well, I think, by the way, you touched on a really important point, which is I think that uh, having myself grown up in an era when, you know, home computers were becoming a thing, um, I never really thought about patenting much except software. You know, I never really thought about physical objects. I, I was always geeking out in a virtual space. And so here is somebody who probably had a very similar set of interests, but was engaged in the physical world, in the world of gears and cams and, and plastics, you know, to make machines. And he built sailboats and he built, actually, I don't know if he built sailboats, but he you know, he built furniture, he used his hands to make things. And quite frankly, I don't do that. I never did that because I use my hands to make, you know, words and stuff. And I think that's a distinction when you look back and say, if I were transported back to the 20s or 30s, and I were, you know, geeking out hard, I would probably be geeking out over like, you know, aeroplanes and automobiles and, and things, you know, these double these entry new, accounting systems, <laughs> exactly these exciting new systems. Uh, and that's sort of the you get a little bit of that vibe when you look at these old patent applications and stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. I was gonna say my, uh, my ancestors, uh, my father's family, uh, all of his grandparents came from the same town in Lithuania. And we were, uh, among other things, cabinet makers. And, uh, and I'm not exactly down, you know, talking my family down, but none of us really made anything since. Like we were, we were people who worked with our hands, which is not atypical four generations, three generations ago. Uh, sure. And then, um, you know, my family sold furniture for uh, that was the the career of my great great grandfather and my grandfather and my father uh, for a while before he became entrepreneurial. Uh, the closest thing we've come, in my family, is making granola and uh, <laughs> as, as a business, not as a uh, not in the oh, kitchen. I see, not, in the not as a sort of a self pejorative uh, hippie granola situation. It, exactly right. Uh, we were making mm-hmm. this is serious granola. My dad was involved in, uh, mm-hmm. but it's but I think that that separation, as you talk about, it, it's like we're X generation removed and and making things it's more complicated to make things but it's e- more easy or it's easier than ever to make things even though at some level it's more complicated to make them as well because you're competing against the universe of things that are very well made uh, at scale um, you know in a world where Apple products exist it's hard to make something that is as good as Apple but we can make all kinds of other stuff that is not um, so in and this is actually one of the questions I had was if you'd researched whether your family stories match reality and clearly you'd looked into this and you say you know your grandmother mentioned a bunch of things but you have patent applications you can go on Google patents and see uh, so you did you did at some point in your life you did a little checking and say all right what did my great-grandfather actually invent I knew that he was the inventor of what I what I thought of as the counting number wheel mm-hmm. now it's actually never it's never named that way in these patent applications it's called like you know a counter or a pick counter or thing that counts or whatever um but for some reason the phrase counting number wheel probably was instilled in me by my grandmother um but yeah i mean i didn't know much about him as a person aside from that he had done this work and i went in and researched what is the work right and what did it have to do with this company Vitor root that i you know it still exists uh, but he did all the jobs at Vitor root he was uh, he worked his way up but eventually he was vice president then president then ceo then chair of the board and then eventually retired and went and you know hung out at the yacht club in florida in the little small town where i eventually would grow up i mean from age uh, 7 onward i lived in venice florida 
Now, of course, I lived there after he had been there. So at one point, you know, as a child, I, I showed up for uh, some dance, right, in the at the yacht club. Now, we were not yacht club types in, at that point in my life. <laughs> and saw that there was a picture of my great-grandfather as, like, the Commodore of the Yacht Club in the 60s or something. Um, and I thought, I mean, I went home and said, Mom, <laughs> what's up with that, right? Well, and by the way, when I did that, she told me that his first yacht, and, and she also took pains to tell me, this is a guy who's buying used yachts, right? I mean, this is not mm-hmm. like a, just, right? so let's be very clear here. He's buying and fixing up a used yacht, but he called it Margale, which is a, a combination of my mother's name, Gail, and her cousin's name, Martha. So he was, and apparently there were many Margales, Margale 1, 2, et cetera, as he would tinker and, and move on. But, you know, the kind of guy that would get a yacht and then sail it around and taught, you know, his his children and grandchildren how to sail, um, you know, built a, a lake house or designed it himself and has the blueprints and all that stuff. Um, so kind of this like towering figure in our family. Well, so that's uh, that was actually my, my final question is that exact question is that, you know, he clearly occupied a key role uh, in, in your family, in your family history. Did uh, your great grandfather, I mean, since you never met him, but you heard all these stories about him, did your great grandfather influence what you did in your life, how you work today? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that the thing I grew up with the assumption because of what he did, I grew up with the assumption that you could make an object that would then be commonplace right so he made this he's counting number wheels that i saw around me in the physical world years many years after his death and like many many decades after he invented them so that to me the idea of the idea that one one person could make something that actually then made it into daily use for a hundred years was kind of normal right and so that made me think like well okay i can just make stuff so I would then go on to make my things and, you know, I, I didn't like, I didn't make the number wheel. Right. But it made me feel like, okay, this is possible. And it's so possible that people in my family have done it before. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that opened it up to me to say, well, you know, if I want to go make a thing, I can probably make a thing. And, you know, if I'm lucky, maybe it'll be useful to people and they'll keep using it. Given the impact that this history of invention had in your life, what do you do today? Well, I'm, I'm a writer and a documentary filmmaker. And being a writer, I've often been frustrated that you can type a thing and then it just kind of goes onto the internet. And if you're lucky, there's a print thing. At, at some point, there's a book. But the books, honestly, in my career, anything printed has been pretty rare. It's almost all digital. Uh, and in doing film, when you actually create something that then gets shown in a group or becomes physicalized, like as a DVD or something... And also, frankly, the process of creating that thing where you have to hold a camera and adjust dials and like, you know, focus pieces of glass that were made by people who actually paid attention to the physical world. I get a lot of satisfaction out of using objects in the world, using my hands to make the work that I make. And to me, that's the thing that ties back to the world that my grandfather, my great grandfather inhabited and changed, you know, and, and shaped with his hands. He built things. He he saw inside them in a way that I probably don't. But it it gave me the sense that when I work with my hands, I feel like, ah, this is something that, that, you know, my people have done before. And it makes me feel really good in a way that just typing a thing just doesn't. Chris Higgins, thank you for joining me. 
And if you have a grandparent, a great-grandparent, some distant ancestor who invented something that you know something about that they invented or that you think you do, uh, get in touch. Send email to nd at newdisrupt.org and I'll get in touch with you. This has been the New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert. Audio lives at SoundCloud and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was hosted by me, Glenn Fleischman. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include access to a private discussion forum for listeners, a fancy enamel pin, and being thanked on an episode. This episode copyright 2018, a periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCNG. 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.